Well, I think of myself as, a, as not an overly complex person. I'm generally not hard to figure out, but I do have one, let's call it a, a peculiarity, that many people just don't seem to understand about me. Here it is. I don't like fish. I may have told you this before, but I don't like fishing, I don't like touching fish, I don't like smelling fish, and I definitely don't like tasting fish. And when I say fish, I mean anything, I mean anything that comes from water. I just think of myself as a dry land kind of guy. I grew up in the prairies, I prefer to stay away from the water and just stay on the land. If it's food and it comes from the land, I will eat it for the most part. If it comes from water, whether it's fresh water or whether it's salt water, whether it's, whether it's a puddle, <laughs> whether it's pickerel or piranha, whether it's crab or cod, whether it's salmon or seaweed or sushi, I prefer to stay away from it. To me, it's very simple. Like I said, not very complex. But it is so interesting to me that people just cannot seem to understand that. They just don't get it. People have wasted all manner of effort and words trying to convince me that fish is good. No one more than my very own dear mother. To this day, and my mom is now 89 years young, she still tries to convince me that this kind of fish is different from the rest or that that one doesn't taste like this fish. This herring is so good, try it. Or that crab is so good, just try it. And the, and the conversation usually ends with her writing me off and saying, ah, you're crazy. <laughs> you don't know what you're missing. She just can't understand why I would not eat something that to her taste buds is so delectable and desirable and delicious. Well, I tell you that because it made me think of John 3.16. When I give you that biblical reference, you know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, I bet you if I were to go to Tim Hortons right now and ask the people there, people that aren't in church this morning, if I were to ask those people if they know what John 3.16, I, I think a good bunch of them would be able to tell me what it says. This is the most famous, most known verse in the Bible, even to those who are not Christians. I don't see it as much anymore, but it used to be that whenever you saw a sporting event, usually American football games, someone would invariably be holding up a sign that says John 3.16. You know, when the camera goes behind, if they're kicking a field goal, the camera goes and shows the back view and where you can see the kicker and you can see the crossbars. Somewhere, invariably, behind those crossbars, you see somebody holding up a sign that says uh, John 3.16. Players... Uh, one particular player, Tim Tebow, used to wear it underneath, in, in, on the eye black underneath his eyes. It said John 3.16, that reference. Apparently, I've heard, I haven't heard the song or anything, but apparently Keith Urban has a reference in the title to, uh, in, that reference in the title to one of his songs. Why is that verse so well known? Well, it's so well known because it contains, contains such great uh, and hopeful and, and very emotional words. It has great news about God's love toward people. For God so loved the world. 
and it has great news for us. See, some people are just finishing the verse for me. Uh, It has great news. It's got a promise of eternal life. I think the popularity of it comes from those first five words. Everyone is thrilled to know that God so loved the world. People are attracted to a God that loves the world so much. Who would not be attracted to a God like that? So why does me not liking fish remind me of this verse? Well, it's in this. In the same way, my mother is stymied by how I could possibly not like fish when it has such a wonderful taste for her. We might ask, why, if John 3.16 has such wonderful news about how much God loves the world, why is it that so many people mock God and use his name in vain? Why is it that so many people break God's laws without a second thought? Why do so many people hate God? And more to the point, why is it that so many people reject God? Why do so many people turn away from this God who so loved the world? We might even say the same thing my mom says to me. They're crazy. Well, the verses that follow the majestic John 3.16 will help us understand why that is. But the stakes, of course, are much, much higher than me not eating fish. And so if you're not there yet, please find John 3.16 in your Bibles. Even if you know that verse off by heart, I encourage you today to have your Bibles open there. John 3.16 and 17 and 18, right up to verse 21, they're, they're such important words that I want you to, uh, I want to make sure that you know that I'm just not making this up. This is right in the Bible. So look with me at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, these words, especially those first words, are, are so familiar. They're, they're so precious to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would anew press these words into our hearts this morning. But Lord, help us not to stop with John 3.16. Help us to see the, the vast uh, import, the importance of those other verses. Those verses that tell us why it is that um, people don't believe. That people don't come. That people don't receive. That people don't accept the love that you have for us, that you showed us by giving us your son. 
So I pray that your spirit would be here this morning, that your spirit would be speaking to us, be speaking to our consciences, would be speaking to our spirits, and I pray that you would help us to see these words afresh and to be able to apply them to our very hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, this passage happens at the same time as a conversation that we saw last week between a high-ranking Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus and Jesus. If you were here last week, Pastor Andrew uh, unpacked this conversation and helped us see what Jesus meant when he said that you must be born again. Born again, two two other words that are well-known but are often misunderstood. Uh, That whole exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus is, is fascinating. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he acknowledges that Jesus, like himself, was a teacher. But he also perceives that Jesus uh, is able to do some things that he is not yet able to do. He's maybe a level up is how he sees Jesus. Even though Nicodemus likely has reached the highest spot uh, in, the, in that system of Jewish law, we could maybe equate the, the position that Nicodemus had to, to achieving a, a Supreme Court position in our government or the U.S. government. Jesus has been doing all of these signs we read before in chapter 2, verse 23. And so Nicodemus comes and he implies to Jesus that he's still missing something. He's trying to get Jesus to let him in on the next step, maybe, in knowing God. What does he need to do in order to get to that next level? And we learn that Jesus actually devastates him with his answer. He basically tells him, You can't do anything. Nicodemus, like all Jews, thought thought that you had to do something, really like all uh, other religions, thought that you had to do something in order to please God. But Jesus says, no, no, you, you need something that you cannot do. What would that be? He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that would have floored Nicodemus. And we can see that he was floored from the rest of the conversation. He doesn't know what to do with that. Born again? Being born is the one thing that no one can do, right? What did you contribute to your birth? Answer is nothing. And that's exactly the point. Jesus is actually starting to evangelize Nicodemus here. He's sharing the gospel with him. Nicodemus this high-ranking teacher of the law of God needed to be born again. And he's saying that only God can make that happen. We don't contribute anything to our natural birth, and we can't contribute anything to our spiritual birth. Only God can bring about the new birth. We must be born from above. God is the one who has to give life. Sadly, Nicodemus doesn't buy it at least at this point, although he seems to later on. But in verses 14 and 15 of John 3, Jesus reminds him about a story during the time of Moses where the people of Israel disobeyed. They disobeyed God, complained to God, uh, they weren't trusting God, and God sends judgment by the way of killer snakes. Read about that in Numbers 21. But God also after they came to to God and pleaded for God to relent from his judgment, 
God also provides a way of escape from judgment by, by way of a, of a pole with a serpent on top. Strange. Not a normal way of curing snake bite. God had kindly and graciously and lovingly, in a way that only he could do it, provided an escape from what was punishment for disobedient people. And in John 3, 14 and 15, Jesus equates that incident, that looking up to the, the serpent, he equates that with belief or faith. Look again at John 3, 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, there's that faith, whoever looks upon him may have eternal life. And that then sets the stage for this great verse that we all know, John three sixteen. There is a response to God's offer of new birth, new life. And that's that we have to look to Jesus, to look up at the Son of Man, the one who would be lifted up on the cross. In other words, we have to believe in Jesus. And that's exactly who God, in his uh, great and extraordinary and, and sovereign love, provides. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Here we see the action of God to rescue people from the whole world from judgment. It's an act of supreme love and glorious love. Here we see God's character. God is a God of love. What's so loving about this? Well, for one, it's the same as what he did back with those snakes. God's love is offered to people that are disobedient and rebellious. Just as God provided an escape from judgment with a bronze serpent on a pole, here his love compels him to give his only, his, his unique son. Back there, it was just for Israel in the wilderness. But this gift is for the world. It's not just for Israel. It's extended to all the nations, to Jew and Gentile. But just think of the greatness of God's love in giving his son. The father gave the best that he could give to redeem people that don't love God. God would have been perfectly just to just let the world go on in their rebellion and, and to just get what their sins deserve. But in his love, he gives this stupendous and, and surprising and, and stunning gift. He gives his son to the world. And he gives him not only in the incarnation, not only by sending him, not only uh, why we celebrate Christmas, that he came to earth, but also he gave him on a cross. He not only gives the son to this world through his birth, he gives up his son in death. And he is given for sinners. Why? Why? D.A. Carson says, the love of God is not a consequence of the world's loveliness but of the sublime truth that God is love. He goes on to say that God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big, 
and because the world includes so many people, but God's love is to be admired because the world is so bad. It's not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, next year, 2017, we celebrate 500 years since that event when he nailed the 95 Theses on the door at the castle at Wittenberg, October 31st, 1517. Luther writes, the one loved is in a strange contrast to the one that's doing the loving. How can this love of God for the world be explained? Why does he see in the world that he is so ready to unbosom himself toward her? If it had been that he loved the angels, they are at least glorious and noble creatures, worthy of his love. But what, on the contrary, is the world but a great mass of people who neither fear nor love nor praise, who who blaspheme God's name and despise his word, and are furthermore disobedient, murderers, adulterers, thieves, knaves, liars, betrayers, full of treachery and malice, in short, transgressors of every commandment. And he says this, Behold, this delicious and gracious fruit he bestows as if upon a beautiful and beloved bride his dear son. Whereas he would have had more than sufficient reason at the very mention of the world to crush her to powder and cast her into the abyss of hell. That is indeed a boundless proof of love and makes this gift inexpressibly great. When the giver, as he to whom it is given, or and he to whom it is given, are placed side by side. Friends, do you grasp the magnitude and the degree of God's love? Of course, in our finite minds, we can't do that in total, but we need to at least try to wrap our heads around that. Paul, actually, in his letter to the Ephesians, prays for exactly that. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that he may grant you strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. And when we start to comprehend this, It's then that we really start to see God for who he is and we start to see this gift for what it is. And when we see this gift for what it is, then we start to marvel at the greatness of this act of God towards sinners. This is the greatest act of love ever given. This is the greatest opportunity ever. This is the greatest offer ever given. This is the greatest invitation ever given. This is the greatest security ever given. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Oh, friends, this is amazing. You might be here today and might think that this could not be possible. Uh, This could not possibly apply to me. I've sinned too much. I've sinned for too long. God could never love me. I don't deserve eternal life. And yet, and you would be right. Yet this says, 
whoever believes. Our lovely King James, whosoever believeth. This invitation goes out to everyone. The uber-religious like Nicodemus need this offer. And the vilest sinner is included in this invitation and everyone in between. Everyone. Whoever. This act of God is almost too good to be true, isn't it? How could anyone ever reject an offer like this? Why would anyone ever reject an offer like this? Well, as utterly implausible as it might seem, people do reject this. This is insanity, isn't it? But such is the insanity of the world. Such is the insanity of sin. People, many people, most people, actually reject this greatest of invitations. Why? How? Look at verses 18 to 21. Verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of the only Son of God. They reject the Savior. But there you have it. Right there you see that there's a dividing into two. Only two responses to this greatest of gifts. God's purpose for sending his son is so that people might be saved through Jesus, is what verse 17 says. But verse 18 distinguishes two kinds of people in this world into which God sent Jesus. It distinguishes two kinds of people in this world into which God sent Jesus. There are those who believe, and there are those who do not believe. There are those who are not condemned, there are those who are condemned already. There are those who believe in the name of Jesus. And yes, there are actually people who reject this gift. Can this really be true? Is this a correct evaluation? If God loved to the degree that he gave his only son, would people really reject that? When you think about John 3.16 and the amazing love of God in the person of his son, as he came and as he went to the cross, as he rose from the dead, you would think that this should set off a massive revival. People would be coming to Jesus in faith by the millions. Yet, it doesn't happen. It didn't happen with Nicodemus, at least not right here. It didn't happen with the crowds there that were hearing this. In fact, Jesus actually has a, a, as we go along, you can read this at the end of John 6 especially, Jesus actually has a lot more people leaving him than following him. And it doesn't happen even now. Centuries later, even though John 3.16 is the most well-known, we could even say most loved verse in the Bible, yet Jesus' followers are in the vast minority. So what is this all about? Can this really be? What kind of people would actually reject the great love of God? What kinds of people would reject the notion of being saved from judgment? What kind of people would reject eternal life? What is wrong with these people? Well, look at the last half of verse 18. Whoever does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. When we come into the world, we are judged already. Ever thought about it that way? Why? Well, we come into the world not believing in the name of Jesus. Isn't that right? If we become Christians, at some point, we all need to be born again. We need to be born from above. We have, to, we have to come to the place where we believe. Where according to verse 15, we have to look to the Son who is lifted up onto the cross in faith. Which really means we just have to rely totally upon his death and upon his resurrection, upon his life even before that, for our salvation. For our escape from eternal judgment. Well, let's keep going. We're still wondering why people won't embrace this greatest of gifts. And, and here you might be starting to think of people that you know and people that you love. And you just cannot, for the life of you, understand why they would reject this great gift. Well, listen carefully again to verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. It's talking about Jesus here. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So there it is. The light has come into the world. It's talking about the sun. That's Jesus. God sent the light into the world. Uh, John uh, uses this light image back in chapter 1, verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. And, and so the light is here. And most things, we know, get attracted to the light. Light, light makes us, want, us want to look at it, it, mostly. But light can also repel us, or at least bother us, especially if it's too bright. We try to shield it, or we try to pull down the shade. It can brighten things up, but it also exposes things that might not otherwise be seen. So look at the next half of verse 19. You have God's gift to the world, and that gift is now in the world, the light is in the world, and here it is. And people have loved, they have loved darkness rather than light their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. They're scared of coming to the light. What is this? You read this, or at least I read this, and I think, this is nuts. This is crazy. This is the height of insanity. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, uh, but people have loved darkness. And not only that, people hate the light. What is that all about? We think, what kinds of people are this that would reject such an enormous, over-the-top, kind, undeserved gift? Here's a gift for people that are already condemned. You've got it. Here it is. This is the way out of condemnation from a holy God. Jesus is here. People can just come to the light by turning from darkness and by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet the world loves darkness and hates light. Really? We look at that from a distance and we think, how foolish. 
In light of John 3.16, in light of the fact that the light has come into the world, why would people love darkness? Could this really be an accurate evaluation of our world? But it really is an accurate description of our world. Our world is crazy. Our world is insane and getting insaner all the time. The world really does love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. Just think of it. We live in a world that systematically and actually lawfully, if you can believe this, kills babies. We live in a world where a man can legally marry a man and a woman can legally marry a woman. We now live in a world where biological men can use women's bathrooms and change rooms and play on women's sports teams. Can you believe this? As long as they identify as women. And those things are now actually being written into policy by our governments. This is really happening. And those are just three examples we can bring forward as exhibits that we live in a world that loves darkness rather than light because their works are evil. But we don't really have to see this from a distance, do we? We can see this within our own circles, within our own relationships. We look at loved ones who reject the light and who don't want anything to do with the light, lest their work should be exposed. How sad, how tragic. It's heartbreaking for us. And so we keep crying out and pleading to the Lord that people would see their sin and people would turn to the light instead of be repelled by the light. We beg God that the wind of the Holy Spirit might blow in their direction and that they might be born again. But we can drill down closer than that even. Even for those of us who do believe, even for those of us who have been saved, we see in ourselves a propensity to drift towards the darkness when the light shines into our lives. We hide from the light. We run from the light. We, we don't want our sin to be exposed. But thank God we're already saved into eternal life. And thank God we have a verse like 1 John 1, 9 which says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. And now anything that we do that is right and truthful also comes to us as a gift from God. We can do, we can love truth, we can do right because we've come to the light. Verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's a great end to this passage. We've been saved because God so loved us and gave his son so that we might not perish but have everlasting life. And now anything we do that's good, reveals that God is working in us and through us. We can take no credit for that. Just like we can take no credit for being born the first time or being born again, even our doing what is true is credited to God alone. If we do anything right, it's just revealing that God is in us. He's carrying out these things through us. But that just points out that a response is required. And that is, Everyone in this world, the world to whom God has sent his son, is required to believe. You have to believe on God's gift of his only son in order to have eternal life. Have you done that? 
You might be here today and are thinking that whatever it is, maybe regular church going, maybe putting some money into the offering basket as it comes. Those sort of things have earned you eternal life. You might think that doing more good things than bad things, you've got sort of a scale going. That would get you eternal life. If, you do, if, if the good side is, is heavier. But listen, Nicodemus thought those same things. He pretty much thought he had made it, but might just need to perform signs like Jesus in order to become more godly, in order to please God more. But Jesus tears all of his self-perceived past achievements right down to the core and says, you can't do anything. You actually have to go way back and you have to get a whole new life. And he's saying that to you today, especially if you're counting on anything other than the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. You have to believe not in yourself, what you can do to please God, but you have to believe on another. Look to the Son. Look up at the Son as he's lifted up on the cross where he died for your sins. Look to the Son as he's risen from the dead. Believe on the Son. Put your faith in the death and the life of the Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you have not done that, make sure you do that today. You don't have to stay where you're at now. This offers for you. You don't have to stay at a place of condemnation. God has, in his grace and in his kindness, he has given you a way of escape. And if you trust in him, if you rely totally on him, there will be no more condemnation. That is the promise of God in his word. You will go from being condemned already to having eternal life already. Make no mistake, there are only two destinies, condemned or not condemned. Will you believe him? And please don't say that I need time to think about this. Today is the day of salvation. Repent, believe, be saved. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we think about this familiar passage, or at least mostly familiar passage, Lord, we are overflowing and unrestrained in our praise this morning. We thank you for letting us bask once again in your great, amazing love. Thank you for your love, and and that even... When we were dead in our sins, you made us alive together with Christ. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that you gave your only begotten Son. Thank you for granting us new birth. And thank you for awakening our faith so that we might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might have eternal life. Thank you that in Christ there is no longer any condemnation. Jesus was condemned in our place so that we might be pardoned from our guilt. Our Heavenly Father, we also pray that these great gospel truths would penetrate into our hearts and souls and may these great truths uh, transform and indeed convert the souls of those who have up to now walked away from the light. May the depth of your love and the giving of your Son 
cause the unbelieving to believe and to be born again. Thank you, Lord, for the great gift of salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.